Throughout the course of the last four years, the United States has watched several social, cultural, and political movements promoting the rights of those who have undergone instances of sexual violence to be seen and heard, as well as to encourage and strive for the permanent dismantling of a widespread culture tolerating these brutal acts upon individuals come out of the woodwork. These movements, including coalitions such as Me Too and Time's Up, have and continue to assist those in receiving the justice and care they need, leading the charge towards effective change and approach. However, on the other end of the spectrum, there has also been a significant amount of setbacks within the past decade that have delayed this progress. In addition to President incumbent Trump, despite a total of 26 incidents of quote-unquote unwanted sexual interaction, 43 concerning quote-unquote inappropriate behavior, and a leaked Access Hollywood tape from 2005 in the midst of the race, winning the 2016 presidential election, and the appointment of Justice Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court in 2018, despite testimony from Dr. Christine Blasey Ford accusing him of sexual assault. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVoe has enacted new changes to how the federal government should permit college campuses across the country to respond to allegations regarding sexual assault, harassment, and violence, including granting those accused the right to defend themselves via hearings, significantly reducing the definition of and what qualifies as sexual harassment, and enforcing victims to choose between investigative or judicial interference to exact their complaints. On the Washington College campus, in response to widespread backlash via the Instagram account Wackanon, criticizing the current Title IX and other related administrations for the lack of response towards handling acts of sexual violence due to these changes, students, particularly those within the student-led on-campus group PeerSmart, which stands for Sexual Misconduct Advocacy and Response Team, to take action and properly inform and strive for those who have experienced sexual violence during the course of their college experience. Today, I will be talking with PeerSmart members Annalie Buscarino and Bess Moscone about the national and local side of handling sexual assault and violence on college campuses. I am your host, Olivia Montez, and this is Washington College Weekly. Our first guest today is senior and peer smart member Annalie Buscarino. Annalie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So, first off, how would you describe your position or your roles relating to peer smart at Washington College? I am a member of peer smart, one of many, very fortunately. So, we all kind of work in a collective to support the goals and agendas of the group. And our fearless leader, Kellen, kind of sets the standard and um, establishes the environment and the goals in which we work towards. But the rest of us, we all work to support those goals, but we also work as individual resources and individual contributors to the cause on campus. And so we individually are all available for students to reach out to us for help in terms of a sexual assault or misconduct experience they are going through, 
or to talk about resources for a friend. So we all have that individual autonomy to provide help when needed, but we also work in this really great and productive and exciting collective where we all kind of put events together, promote initiatives. So it has this really great multifaceted nature of individualism and collectivism to promote these really important cause um, in providing resources for students who have suffered from or experienced sexual misconduct. So I think I think it helps us to reach students on different levels, which is great. So knowing those who have come to Washington College as a member of the student body, upon receiving both a slotted assembly time regarding the subject their freshman year during orientation week, as well as an accompanying set of pamphlets and instructions containing detailed information regarding this wide umbrella of policies that are under Title IX. How would you, as someone who's familiar with these guidelines, summarize or describe the Title IX policies enforced at WAC? Well, this is a difficult question to answer because of all of the recent socio-political changes that we've experienced. I think I could speak more at this current time to an assessment of them, but what I could say in terms of policy is that typically students are told to submit care reports if they have experienced sexual misconduct. And now it is a little ambiguous where the care report ends up based on Betsy Davos's new Title IX policies. From my understanding, the school deals with, or the Title IX board deals with the most severe violations. And from what I have experienced, anything that does not fall under rape and instead falls under sexual assault or misconduct short of rape goes to a section of the honor board which I personally believe is problematic. I don't think students' safety, health, and well-being and trauma should be addressed by a board of the school that deals with legal violations and technical educational violations. I don't think students' well-being falls under that category. So that's my understanding based on my own personal experience submitting care reports to our school about where they end up. I think in general, though, what has been constant despite the change in policies over my past four years at Washington College is that students generally think may or may not be aware of submitting a care report, how to do that. I think that might be collectively understood, but the process and the resources from that point are quite ambiguous. And I do not think despite on previous orientation efforts, and resources that we allot to freshmen, I do not think those have been effective in reinforcing the types of resources we have at Washington College and making students aware of definitions of sexual assault, bystander intervention, and consent because they are materials and resources that are just offered in the first year. And during the first year, students often have this very large orientation checklist, as we all know, where we're kind of going through some procedural 
tasks that we kind of just have to check off the list. And I know for athletes as well, coming in your freshman year, you're trying to navigate between athletic obligations and orientation obligations. So everything is like, all right, attend this orientation, check, attend this training, check. And it's just becomes a part of this list. And I think issues of sexual misconduct and assault have to be paid more intimate and personal attention than that. And so I think that our current approach to informing students about our Title IX policies and procedures is ineffective. And I think the fact that you, me as a Pure Smart member cannot clearly speak to what our current policy is and where everything ends up is problematic because I think that would definitely indicate that most of the student body probably is uninformed and unaware of where their care reports would end up and how they would seek help. So when approaching those who have, as you said, may not be completely familiar with Title IX, either because they were unable to attend the assembly or have just not gone over the policies as mentioned, what is important to keep in mind when helping them to become more understanding towards these policies, but also more comfortable in knowing and effectively using this information? First, in terms of survivors, I think what is absolutely essential for them and for the student body to understand if they are working with a friend or a peer who's dealing with sexual misconduct is the most important thing are the needs and desires of the survivor. Peer Smart is great because we can offer a plethora of resources to survivors, but we want to emphasize that the needs and goals and desires of the survivor are of utmost importance. And we will provide them with a multiplicity of resources to seek different avenues of help and support and understand different coping mechanisms, but their needs, their emotional needs are of utmost importance. And that is what I would emphasize to students who are learning about sexual misconduct as well. I think it's important, especially for freshman students, but I think also very important for students who have been in the system for a few years to understand the pervasiveness of sexual misconduct, not just all college campuses, but on Washington College campus. I remember being a sophomore and hearing about several sexual assault experiences that students were having and being absolutely shocked because I thought that our school did not have a culture that promoted, allowed for, or concealed instances of sexual assault. And I think with our campus, the small size of our campus, it's and collective community that we generally pride ourselves on, it's very easy for us to assume that we are a safer community and that we are stronger as a collective. And I think this serves to silence a lot of survivors because we're very much all familiar with each other. We operate in such a small collective group that I think it can be very intimidating for survivors to come forward with their experiences because they feel as if they're going against a group that's already unified. And personally, I believe that our administration has struggled with being transparent about some of the issues on Washington College campus. And I think this is incredibly problematic for survivors and for friends of survivors who are trying to seek help, especially when thinking about something like the athletics department, like students 
who feel that they have to report something against a student in the athletics department might be incredibly intimidated just because of the strength and unity of the group that that department emphasizes. What's very important for incoming freshmen, but for students throughout the Washington College experience is to recognize that sexual misconduct does happen on our campus. It happens quite often, much more often than it ever should. And that as students, we have to recognize that and we have to be aware of that and we have to address it. But I think the most dangerous thing at our campus is this myth that it does not happen here, especially because we are a small and communicative school, especially within like sororities and fraternities and the athletic department. Students are very, very close and collectivized. And so that reiterates this myth and this rhetoric that that type of that sexual misconduct doesn't happen here. And I, I simply think that that is a big obstacle that we have to overcome through greater transparency of course, maintaining anonymity of students and respecting their experiences. But I think we have to be more transparent about the realism of their sexual misconduct culture that we experience here and emphasize that among students so that they are aware and prepared to address it when they inevitably experience it, either directly or indirectly. Briefly diving into the world of politics, there have been, as you said, often controversial debates concerning how the federal government should allow college campuses across the country to respond to allegations regarding sexual assault, harassment, and violence, and particularly with the U.S. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, new rules, including granting those accused of this misconduct to be granted the right to a hearing, reducing the definition of sexual harassment, very making it very vague, and forcing a choice between either an investigative or judicial complaint, not both. How do you believe this new rule has impacted students from either coming forward or from speaking out further? I am incredibly concerned about the new policies regarding Title IX because coming forward to report an experience with sexual misconduct for oneself or a peer is an incredibly intimidating process as an experience as I was just speaking to, especially at a small school like ours. And, you know, at big schools for the same reason, because you're going up against this institution that no matter what institution it is, no matter what values they have, want to protect themselves as an institution and their finances, which is understandable of an institution that makes money. But it creates a silencing situation for any survivors in general. These new policies have increased the censorship on survivors. It has discouraged survivors from coming forward because now there are all these obstacles, or additional obstacles, there already were obstacles, additional obstacles that a survivor must overcome in order to be validated. Of course, our criminal justice system emphasizes innocence until proven guilty, and I uphold and believe in that paradigm. But the current rules for Title IX validates the experiences and motivations of a perpetrator before validating the experiences and trauma of a survivor. And I think there are many administrative barriers that were just put in place that contribute to the silencing of survivors. And this is a complete blow to, to young women who do experience 
sexual misconduct on college campuses because it does happen. It will continue to happen. And the Me Too movement was indicative that it does happen in all of these different realms of our society and women don't come forward about it because of these institutional barriers. And the Me Too movement was a very empowering revelation of how many women have experienced this and can recognize each other's experience and can now come forward because their experiences were beginning to be validated. But by giving defendants more power, we're invalidating the experiences of survivors that were already essentially institutionally invalidated, already difficult to prove in court, to receive support from legal institutions. And I just think it's going to silence survivors. And even we've already seen in our school shifts based around this paradigm in which, like I spoke to before, sexual assault allegations might go to the honor board. And the school has to address it as like an educational violation opposed to a personal legal violation. And it forces students to consider going to police instead, which can be an even more difficult institutional body to reveal and navigate this process through. And so I'm just, I'm very concerned about the way that these policies will silence survivors. I'm concerned about the ways that they will protect defendants over survivors. Obviously, like I said, our criminal justice system emphasizes innocence until proven guilty. But it's ironic because our criminal justice system has always focused on punishment opposed to providing resources for the victims, which is one of its many fallacies. But in this case, specifically for sexual assault, which is largely against women, it instead seems to provide resources for defendants as if they are the victims and makes it a huge institutional barrier for survivors to receive the help that they need, whether they recognize it or not. I've already seen the way that they're kind of taking shape in our school And I think now more than ever, like peer smart and our institution, the administration has to be very transparent about what survivors can do if they have an experience with misconduct, how they can receive help and what is the best way for them to go about it within this new paradigm of sexual misconduct litigation. And as we've seen, the election has happened and there has been several qualms as to what's going to happen next once in January we received the Biden and Harris administration. Do you hope that these points will be continued to be acknowledged, that there will be changes made to undo the damage that has happened with this current administration? Yes, I am hopeful. I don't want to speak too much to politics as if I know everything about them or I'm familiar with all of the policies being put forward or rescinded. But I do want to say that I am hopeful. I do believe that President-elect Biden disapproved of the majority of Davos's policies and shifts in the Title IX paradigm. And I do believe that there will be efforts to allocate more resources to survivors. And right now, being all of the resources that have been allocated to defendants, that would, I think, would be the next step is is at least equalizing or stabilizing access to resources and support throughout this process and system. And so I think that's something that 
um, President-elect Biden. And now we have a vice president-elect who is female. And so hopefully there would be more of an emphasis on female survivors and as an extension, male survivors of sexual misconduct who are generally overlooked and very much stigmatized in coming forward with their own experiences of sexual misconduct and they are very much silenced as well. So I'm really, really hopeful that our new administration would allocate more resources to survivors as a starting point to eventually tackling this policy, this new Title IX policy that was put forward. It is definitely a behemoth of a policy. It was in the making for many years. So I'm not sure how much can be amended to it within the next four years, but I'm hopeful as a starting point, more resources will be allocated to survivors. In terms of Supreme Court, I have a little more concern just because of a lot of the previous experiences that some of the new nominations have had, especially, for example, Kavanaugh, who himself was a defendant in a hearing about sexual misconduct, would naturally probably be inclined to want to offer more resources to defendants. And I can't speak to that being his ideology or his perspective, but having somebody who was a defendant in a hearing about sexual misconduct, it would make sense if there was an empathy towards defendants. And so I am worried about that clash, but I'm hopeful in terms of presidential-elect administration that at least as a starting point, more resources will be offered to survivors. Bringing the conversation back briefly to campus, there have also been concerns around the school, particularly through the Instagram account Wackanon, regarding how the handling of different sexual assault and different violence cases by the Title IX administration have been, as you said, lacking in transparency needed to appropriately handle these cases and therefore give peace of mind, for lack of a better word, to these survivors. How do you believe this kind of outreach or how this platform kind of impacted how fellow students or their peers came forward with their own experiences or letting other students know uh, this is a problem and this needs to be acknowledged and really improved upon. There's a lot of controversial perspectives about the Anon accounts on Instagram, but I think that the focus should be on the fact that students felt they had to be created in the first place. And as we've seen, there has been an onslaught of information about experiences with victimization that have been posted on there. And I think the concern with that should be that students either did not feel comfortable or did not feel heard to report their experiences of victimization to our administration and felt that in order to be validated, they had to go onto social media. The one benefit of the social media accounts that some of the things that it accomplished that our administration has not is very clearly and very directly providing transparency on survivors' experiences with victimization on our campus and with the Title IX board on our campus. And it did, because of that transparency, 
students were able to connect with each other, to empathize with each other, and to support each other, and to protest for each other. So those, like I said, there are many controversial perspectives on the Instagram accounts, but the biggest benefits of them, I think, is transparency and the ability for students to finally be able to see each other, recognize each other, and support each other. So those are two things that I think the social media accounts accomplish. But I think it is absolutely problematic that students felt that because of their experiences with censorship on our campus and lack of support on our campus, they felt that the only way they could find that type of support was by creating a social media account that maintained students' anonymity, but exposed their experiences to the rest of the student body, which can be traumatic. And having to reach some sort of and create some sort of support system that way. So I think the premise of the creation of the Instagram accounts is problematic because it implies that lack of transparency and lack of support from our school. And I'm hoping that for students who used it as a resource, it enabled them to at least feel a better sense of support and be able to navigate the process much more efficiently and much more, I guess, safely for their for their mental state and for their physical state. So I hope it provided the support students were looking for. And I hope what our administration took from that is that our students feel silenced, our students feel unsafe, our students do not feel supported by the institution, and students felt that we had to take measures into our own hands to achieve that sense of safety and community that many students expected our school to be providing for us. So I hope the administration has recognized that as foundational to the creation of the accounts, regardless of the repercussions of them, and is working to address enhancing that sense of support and safety for students, becoming more transparent in our processes, and in prioritizing the needs of our students first before anything else. So with all of this in mind, how can we as WAC students and members of the WAC community further improve ourselves as being not only supporters of survivors, but also to be fellow advocates? I think the biggest asset of our school is the tendency and desire to elevate each other's voices. I think we're a small collective of students, but I think we're a powerful collective of students. And what I love about our community and respect about our community is so many of the students on campus want to make each other's voices heard. And I think leaning into that community of support, but elevating the voices of our peers would be the most effective way for us to operate within this small community in a way that is supportive to each one of the individual components within it. And I think that especially we, I think as a student body and as individuals, we have to be especially keen and ambitious about elevating the voices of our minoritized peers, of the racially minoritized students on our campus, students on campus with minoritized sexual orientations and gender identities, those students who historically have identities that have been suppressed by our government, by our academics institutions, and by our college itself, 
we have to especially focus on elevating their voices and their experiences with victimization and their experiences with discrimination on our campus and off of it. We have to advocate for placing minoritized students into decision-making positions on our campus, into leadership positions, so that those experiences of victimization and discrimination can be addressed from the people who are experiencing it and not from the people who think that they can represent those students instead, who think that they could speak for those students. I think our focus as a community has to be to elevate each other's voices, not to speak for each other. And in elevating those voices, place students, especially of minoritized identities who have historically been censored and suppressed into the decision-making positions so that their voices can make decisions for themselves opposed to having a majority make decisions for them. So like I said, my biggest advice or goal would be to elevate each other's voices, not speak for each other. And I think that's the best way we can achieve the collective empowerment and productivity that our school values. Well, Annalie, thank you so much for insight. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Our next guest is another PeerSmart member, Bess Muscone. Bess, welcome to the show. Thank you. So first, how would you describe your position relating to PeerSmart at Washington College? My position as of right now is we're kind of just members of the group. We haven't really had a chance to get any experience like answering the hotline, but what we're supposed to be doing when we're on campus, hopefully in the spring, we're supposed to be answering a hotline phone that's for emergencies regarding sexual assault and sexual misconduct, like for students and potentially faculty to use. And that phone is available 24-7. Yeah, and uh, we're basically here to give resources for potential callers, like counseling services and stuff like that. So before we dive into a discussion regarding the U.S. Secretary of State Betsy DeVos's initiation of rules determining how college campuses should handle cases of sexual assault, I did briefly want to ask, When thinking about political involvement in the topic of college campus policies and overall attitudes towards sexual assault, how do you feel this has aided in or hindered how campuses either talk about it or handle cases of sexual violence on campus? So she has kind of, in my opinion, I think she has hindered the way colleges can handle sexual assault now, like she has put more power in the assailant instead of the survivor, which I don't think is very beneficial because now the person who is being accused of potentially assaulting someone now has more power over than the survivor instead should be more equal in my opinion, instead of more power. I think She basically allowed colleges to just be like, all right, we don't have to help survivors as much, which is not really beneficial. Like she kind of revisions to Title IX kind of let colleges off the hook, such as like can't really report to Title IX if you're assaulted in an off-campus party or like a bar potentially. Like that's not under Title IX, that's under the honor board. So that's the same people who decide whether or not you should be caught for plagiarism and potentially having repercussions for that. So it's the same group of people now deciding. Just crazy. 
also the fact that during the course of the 2016 presidential election, as well as throughout now President incumbent Trump's four years as commander in chief of our country, there have been reports and actual evidence of him engaging in inappropriate and often violent and aggressive sexual acts towards women. In addition to the resurfacing of the now infamous Access Hollywood tape from 2005, which was described as locker room talk and was at the height of the presidential race, there were also a total of 26 reports of quote-unquote unwanted contact and 43 more detailing quote-unquote inappropriate behavior. When looking back on all of these incidents, how do you think this had either encouraged or further upheld this culture of sexual violence before Trump was eventually elected? So I do know of some people who had voted for Trump in 2016 and then just didn't believe it. But I have seen people just cannot accept the truth. And I just think that is because Trump has been displaying like the propaganda towards fake news. Like, yes, not all news is true, but he's also discrediting scientists and politicians that have spent their whole entire careers studying these facts. And he's just like, nope, it's fake. And then people are just so easily eager to hop on the bandwagon and be like, oh, yep, just because the president said that it's fake, that means that it's the truth. So with the arrival of the Trump administration, there also came DeVos, whose policies towards how colleges should approach handling sexual violence cases, which included for like a brief summarized reminder, reducing the definition of sexual harassment towards a broader, vaguer term, granting those, as you said, accused of this misconduct to be given the right to a hearing, and forcing survivors to choose either between an investigative or judicial complaint, but not both. How did these enforced rules influence how it impacted individuals from either coming forward or from speaking out further about their own experiences? In my opinion, I believe that this would make survivors potentially less comfortable to come forward about their experiences with sexual misconduct, especially because some of their power as a survivor to tell their story has been taken away. And I really think that it would make survivors less comfortable with coming forward. And then around the same time, we as a country were also witnessing the mainstream rise of an additional branch of fourth wave feminism, which sought to promptly respond to these restrictive rules by addressing not only how we talk about the severity of this problem, but also how it impacts real women on an everyday basis. In addition to the Women's March at Trump's inauguration in January of 2016, there has also been a rise of social movements and other coalitions such as Me Too and Time's Up and watching this domino effect of once powerful men in various industries and fields becoming canceled from recognition either through the judicial system or forced disappearance from the public eye entirely. Do you feel that this cycle combated this toxic culture of sexual violence with the introduction of these movements? Or is this the foundation of a platform that needs to continue to be recognized? I think that the Me Too movement and Time's Up is just the beginning. I don't think that it's over and I don't think it ever will be over unless there is equality and justice is served for survivors and that assailants are finally put away and are not 
not able to silence people that they assault. I would say it's still a fight. What do you feel needs to happen next? Well, I feel that more justice needs to be served. And I think that, like, as far as Trump with his 26 sexual assault allegations, I think that these need to be thoroughly investigated and he should be penalized for that, for sure. For example, and there's so many other cases out there, but including President-elect Biden with his case against him. We have also watched that alongside the rise of these movements and everything in between, the swearing-in of both Justice Brett Kavanaugh, in which his swearing-in was highly publicized with Dr. Ford's testimony accusing him of sexual assault and misconduct, and now the recent inclusion of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, whose views bridge on supporting conservative and constitutionalist ideals such as being pro-life. How do you feel that with the inclusion of both Justice Kavanaugh and with Justice Barrett now on the Supreme Court, how do you think this will impact what we've been working so hard to really address? Well, being that they do have very conservative standpoints, I just really hope that they upstand the law and they take what the evidence that is given to them and they make the appropriate decision about like concluding the investigations. Finally, with the upcoming arrival of the Biden-Harris administration, under which we have our first woman and woman of color as vice president in the White House, do you feel that there is significant change on the horizon in terms of not only how we address sexual violence, but also find solutions as to ensure that every woman is heard and every person, I should say, is believed? From what I've been reading about the Biden administration and what their plans are as far as uh, with Title IX, he is looking to pull back on all, almost everything that Betsy DeVos put in line in August. And that's like including people, transgendered persons, as far as people with multi, like different gender identities, like being able to use which bathroom that they identify with and being able to compete in college athletics. The list just kind of goes on and on about all the things that she pulled back from. And from what I've gathered is that he's planning on putting everything back in place from the Obama administration and hopefully taking it to another level in survivor advocacy. Do you feel hopeful that all of this will be, if not accomplished in the first 100 days, then at some point during his first four years? Sadly, I really don't think that it's going to be as quick as 100 days. From what I've also read is that this could potentially take up to two years. And I think that is also because of some things that Betsy DeVos put in plan, that she put more hurdles that need to be jumped over in order to get these changes put in place. And that all these changes have to go to the Senate and the House, which is, I mean, the Senate's currently more conservative and then the House is more democratic. So hopefully it doesn't take as long as two years. Well, Bess, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. With the upcoming inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, both have expressed their dedication to overturning DeVos's plan, as well as to build upon the policies of former President Barack Obama and his previous administration, and introduce additional options towards addressing sexual violence. 
It is still possible their administration could be met with resistance from conservative representatives within the legislative branch. On campus, with recent changes regarding representatives in the Title IX administration, Pierce Smart continues to formulate plans as to how to address and educate those about sexual violence, as well as provide students the resources they need throughout their on-campus experiences. If you have any additional questions or are interested in learning more about how to get involved with PeerSmart, be sure to contact student leader Kellen Handley for more information. If you or someone you know at Washington College has been sexually assaulted or has had related violence perpetrated on them, contact the Sexual Assault Response Advocacy Hotline or WAC Health and Counseling Services. For community resources, contact or go to For All Seasons, Inc., University of Maryland Shore Regional Health, University of Maryland Shore Medical Center at Easton, Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault, or Mitchell Council on Family Violence. All contact information regarding these and additional services are available under the Gender-Based Violence Response and Prevention Education tab under the Title IX page on the Washington College website. This has been Washington College Weekly. I'm your host, Olivia Montes, and I will see you next semester. Have a safe, relaxing break.